Let's bow our heads together. Father God, we thank you because you are the Lord of hosts. Where else will we go, Lord, if it's not to you? And I just pray today that you will come to us and your word will be made alive amongst us and that Brother Marcus will share this message with us, not from his own point of view, Lord, but from the point of view of your word and, and um, what you would want for us to, to do and to, uh, to respond. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And pray for, specifically for the peace of Jerusalem. And I'm going to get into some very interesting scriptures today that, that will show us why this is so very important, other than the fact that the Lord commanded us to do so. Back in 1948, something significant happened on the prophetic timeline. Those of you who know anything about the reestablishment of the nation of Israel, it was an amazing um, event in history. The Jewish people had basically been expelled from their land since 70 A.D. when the second temple was destroyed. So the Roman army burned the city and uh, the, the legions there set the temple on fire. It was burned and, and the Jews were able to remain in the land for about another hundred years or so. But through some other various revolts, they were eventually just completely put down and destroyed by the Romans. And they actually t uh, just the, the Romans tilled up uh, the city of Jerusalem and the Temple Mount. And they made sure that they put salt and all kind of things all over the ground out there. So they, they, they wanted to make sure that it would never again be uh, habitable. They, they wanted to, to leave it a desolate place so that no one could live, live there anymore because the Jewish people had been such a thorn in the side of the Romans and they were always seeking their freedom from underneath the Roman control and, and the Roman power. But there in 70 AD, the temple was destroyed. And again, we, we've, we've not seen the temple in uh, the city of Jerusalem since that day. And you think about for that, from that period of time, from 70 AD all the way up until 1948, Okay, almost 1,900 years, the people of Israel, the Jewish people, had basically been dis, uh, dispersed throughout the nations, but most of them, many of them, had retained their identity, their religious identity, their ethnic identity, to the point to, the, to, the, to, the point to where in after World War II, which just happened to be one of the worst times, if not the worst period of time for the Jewish people, as we all know, what happened there with under the, uh, the leadership of Adolf Hitler in Nazi Germany, how the Jews were slaughtered and taken to concentration camps. And, and uh, it is said to, that somewhere between a third, if not more, of the Jewish people on the planet were, were exterminated under the hands of Nazi Germany. It was right after the Holocaust that the Jewish people were given the greatest, one of the greatest blessings that they've ever received by a vote of one in the United Nations following the peace accords of the World War II. And I, actually it was President Harry Truman who they believe cast the deciding vote, the United States President Harry Truman, who cast the deciding vote and it passed by one vote for the nation of Israel to be able to be reestablished as a sovereign nation in the land once again. That was 1948. And the reason I say that's significant is because if you're a prophetic student of the word and you look at the scriptures, you understand that until there was a state and a sovereign nation of Israel and the Jewish people were back in the land, there are many, many prophecies in the scriptures that could not be fulfilled. Let me give you an example of some. Number one... The scriptures are very clear that during the time of the end that the, the people of Israel will be dwelling securely in the land. Now, I know that, that the Middle East, and specifically Israel, uh, it is a very contentious land. There, there are constantly, you know, uh, uprisings, and there, there's a lot of uh, dispute over that territory. I understand that. But I, if any of you in, in here who have ever been to the land of Israel, and I was fortunate enough, we're so thankful that we were blessed, my wife and I were blessed to be able to go last September... I never once was afraid. I never once felt like I was, uh, you know, in danger. Because the land, overwhelmingly, the land of Israel is very what? It's very secure. It, it, is, it is a very stable place right now. Other, I mean, yeah, it has its, again, it has its problems. But, but you can go to Israel and feel very safe and, and feel very secure. And so that's one of the, the prophetic um, 
teachings in Scripture that talk about that they will be dwelling securely, safely, and in peace in the land. There's also this idea that there's going to be a covenant in the last days that it, the leadership of Israel makes with many other nations surrounding them and that this covenant will be called in, in Isaiah, he calls it in Isaiah 28, a covenant of death because they're going to seek help from other surrounding nations to protect them when they should be turning only to the Lord. We haven't seen that covenant take place yet. There's some type of a formal, I think it's going to be some type of a military agreement or alliance, but we haven't seen that happen yet. But again, that kind of a covenant could not take place unless the Jews were living in the land as a sovereign nation. Now they're able to do that. We're taught in Scripture that daily sacrifices will resume in the land of Israel. Did you know that? There will come a time, I believe, in our lifetime that we'll see the priestly system, uh, uh, the sacrificial system of Israel be reinstituted and will begin to resume there in the land of Israel. And eventually, if not at the beginning, eventually it will lead to the rebuilding of a temple there on the Temple Mount, what we would call the third temple, and that we will see that happen. That could not have happened unless the Jews were living where? Back in the land, 1948 was a significant year for the Israelites to have their own nation again. Also, we know that in the scriptures it teaches that when the, the we call him the beast, the antichrist, the little horn, he goes by many, many different names. He's the last end time ruler who's going to invade the nation of Israel. He's going to invade the city of Jerusalem and lay siege to the city. And the Lord tells the people of Israel that when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, you're to what? Flee, get out to the mountains. I'm going to supernaturally protect you and provide for you. If you listen to me, get out when you have a chance because it's going to be an overwhelming scourge that comes into the land and many will be taken into captivity and many will be killed. That could not happen unless the Israelites, the Jews, were living in the land. We understand that there's going to be this great turning of the Jewish people back to the Lord as he pours out a spirit of grace. We'll see that here in just a moment. And then, of course, we know that the very final battle will be the battle for Jerusalem. That the Lord Jesus Christ, when he comes, he's coming to deliver his people from his city. He's coming to destroy the beast and the armies of the beast and the enemies of Israel, and the enemies of God. And that Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ will reclaim his rightful place on the throne of David there in the city of Jerusalem. So Jerusalem has always been center. It is, many scholars call it, the epicenter of the earth. It's the center focus of the earth. And there's a reason for that because the Lord himself said, I have put my name on this mountain and it will be on this place. It will be my dwelling place forever. Amen. Well, we all know that that which God has claimed for himself, the, the devil wants. And that's why Jerusalem specifically is such a hotly contested piece of real estate in the world. The most spiritually contested piece of real estate on planet Earth. And so until 1948, none of those things that I just shared with you were even possible. But we have to understand that after 1948, now all of a sudden our eyes were opened and we were awakened to the reality that yes, all of these things now as the nation of Israel has been reestablished and the people are back in the land, all of these things now are not just possible, guys, they are probable. Amen. And they're going to happen, I believe, soon. Beyond that, we've seen some very interesting developments in geopolitical relationships in the Middle East, I would say developments that are once in a lifetime. If any of you have been paying attention, this current administration under the leadership of Donald Trump and some of his um, staff, they have been seeking to create uh, a, a uh, not, it's not necessarily a peace agreement, but this, this is normalization of relationships with Israel and the other surrounding nations. If you've been paying attention, these are historic agreements. And what, is it, what do I mean by normalization? You have to understand that if you're a Jew living in the Middle East, you can't go to Saudi Arabia. You can't fly your plane over their territory. Because they have, they, ever since 1948, 1967, 1973, most of the nations surrounding Israel are still hostile towards Israel. They are in a, in a ceasefire, as you will, and that their relationships are very much on bad terms. And so, therefore, they, they don't have any free trade. There's no open borders. There's no ambassadors. There's no embassies at, in each 
uh, country, those things are non-existent until just about a few months ago when the very first Middle Eastern country since Jordan and Egypt, who both have peace agreements with Israel, the very first countries, the United Arab Emirates and then Bahrain, both were the first two Middle Eastern countries to reestablish some normalization with the people of Israel, meaning they can take flights, they can enter into each other's countries, they can take a passport, they can, they can have an embassy and ambassadors represent each country. So they're trying to make some type of normal relationships happen. Guess what happened just the other day? I think it was yesterday. Another country came on board. Sudan, Northern Africa. Very significant. It, it's known in the Bible as the land of Cush. You go read about the significance of Cush in the end time prophecies about Cush is a very specific na nation mentioned and identified in the last days when Israel is laid to siege and the, and the nations invade Israel. This nation just came on board to, all, to just follow in the footsteps of these other nations to normalize relationships with the people. Of, guys, these are historic agreements. These are historic things happening in our lifetime. Do you think that's any mistake? Do you think that this is just a, a coincidence? There's no coincidence. These things are happening because things are moving in a direction to where Israel is going to begin to normalize relationships with many other. I think Saudi Arabia will be one of the next nations to come on board. And when these things happen, guys, look, we look at it from a couple of different perspectives. This is good in many ways. This is a wonderful thing in many ways. Okay? Because it's good to see nations cooperate. It's good to see borders become open. It's good to see trade take place in the Middle East. It's good to see them not live in hostility toward one another. But guys, ultimately we know that it's setting the stage for a false peace. A false peace. And we know that there's going to be a ruler, a very persuasive and powerful ruler who's going to emerge on the scene. And we're going to see him emerge on the scene, kind of out of the shadows. And he's going to lead many of these other nations to enter into a major covenant with the people of Israel. And it's going to create a sense of what? Peace and security and safety in the Middle East. And he's going to be heralded as a great man of peace. Of course, the Bible speaks of him as the beast. He's going to be the little horn, the, the Assyrian, the, uh, you know, he go, again, he goes by all these different names. It's interesting, we use the name the Antichrist, you know, that the, that the, the end times ruler is never specifically named the Antichrist. It's interesting, but that's the, that's the most common name that we use for him, so I'll just call him the Antichrist, but yeah, that's who he will be. And so the stage is, what I'm trying to get you to understand is that it's a good thing on one hand, but on the other hand, we know how the story goes, we know how the story ends, and so we know that these things are having to happen on the groundswell, the grassroots movement of this normalization, this, this Middle Eastern peace and safety is starting to happen, it's starting to take place, and it's setting the stage, guys, for the development of the last days and the emergence of the Antichrist. Because what I just told you is so very important. Jerusalem was claimed by God. It is his city. It is his holy mountain. And that's where Jesus will reign and rule forever and ever. And so that which God has declared to be his, who wants that? Satan wants that. So that's why the Antichrist, the beast, part of his entire plan is that he wants the third temple to be rebuilt. He wants to see the temple constructed there on the Temple Mount because he wants to enter into it and set up his own what? Throne. He wants to sit on the throne that only is reserved for the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of Kings. He wants to be take his place, which is what the devil has always wanted. He's always wanted to ascend above the Lord. He's always wanted worship. And he's always envied and and had a spirit of covetousness against the Lord because he's always desired that worship for himself, that which is only due to the Lord our God and his son Jesus Christ. And that's why this thing is so very interesting, but it's kind of complicated because on one hand we think, hey, this is great, the Jews get their temple back, they get to resume sacrifices, they get to worship on the temple mount again. Yeah, that sounds great, but we know where it leads and we know where it ends, and that's not so good. And so that's why it's important that we keep our eyes open and we pay attention to what's happening at the epicenter of the earth, which is the land of Israel, specifically the city of Jerusalem. Amen. Now, today we are going to spend some time praying for the people of Israel. We, we otherwise know them today as the Jews. 
and I'm going to get into a little bit of the history today, is why it's important that we understand there, there is a distinction between the house of Israel and the house of Judah. There's a reason why those are two separate houses, and I'm going to get into that here in just a minute. But right now, the people that are living in the land underneath the leadership of Israel, those are the Jews because they have been able to trace their lineage and their heritage back to the tribe of Judah. Okay, and, and I'll tell, tell you more about that here in just a second. But one of the reasons why we as Christians today are, are a little bit confused or our understanding of our relationship to the people of Israel or to the Jews is very complicated or maybe we're confused about it is because most people fall on one of two extremes that I think are very dangerous to fall in. And it's important that I mention this. Now, I'm not going to go into great detail, but you need to know about these things. Okay. On one hand, uh, many, I hate to stereotype, but many reform circles, they teach what's called replacement theology. Okay, if you've never heard of replacement theology, let me explain it to you. Many people in these circles, these are, these are God-fearing, Jesus-loving people. I'm, I'm not saying they're, you know, they're heretics or anything, but this is a dangerous teaching that they embrace. They believe that when Israel rejected its Messiah, when Jesus was rejected by the leadership of Israel, God said, okay, I wipe my hands of you, I divorce you, you have been disinherited, and I'm no longer going to give you anything that I've promised you, and I'm going to transfer all of my blessings and promises to the church. Specifically, the Gentile church. That's called replacement theology. And so most people who believe in replacement theology, they have no expectation for the restoration of Israel. They have no expectation for the kingdom of Israel to be restored. They have no expectation for God to fulfill his promises that he made to Israel. And so they say basically all those things are null and void. And now God is operating only with what we call the church. That's replacement theology. That is not right. That is not an accurate teaching. On the other hand, you have what's called dispensational theology. And it's a, it's, it's a little better because the dispensationalists, they still acknowledge the role and the, and, the, and the proper place of Israel. But they too draw a distinction between Israel and the church. They see us as two different people, two different we're two different brides of the Lord. We're, you know, we're, we're two different bodies. That God works a little bit different with Israel as he does with the church. And so there's, a, there's too much of a dividing wall there. There's too much of a distinction there between Israel and the church. In dispensational theology, there is a, a, an error in replacement theology. Guys, neither one of those are accurate de depictions and descriptions of our relationship to Israel. You see, the Bible presents a different picture. The biblical picture is this. I, I call it, you know, again, we have to label everything. I call it this. There's remnant restoration. What do I mean by that? God has always preserved for himself a what? A remnant of believers. Amen. Jews and Gentiles. Because even in the nation of Israel, back when God established the nation of Israel and he gave Israel the law, we forget that Gentiles were incorporated into the nation of Israel. They were believing Gentiles, and even though they were a minority, they were still believers and they were Gentiles, and yet they were still part of the commonwealth and the nation of Israel. And as we read there in Romans 9 just a while ago, not all who have descended from Israel are Israel, because just because you have the physical descent, just because you can ethnically say I'm a Jew, doesn't mean that you're a believer in right relationship with God. That's why from beginning to end, the Bible's one message is this. The just shall live by faith. It's always been by grace through faith. Whether it be in the Old Testament or the New Testament, it doesn't matter. Every believer, whether Jew or Gentile, has entered into a relationship with God one way, by faith. And so there's always been one body, one family of God, one household of God. There's always been one assembly of the righteous, one congregation of God's people. There's always been one household of God. There's always been one priesthood of believers. There's always been one family of God. Guys, this is what I'm trying to tell you. 
is that as a Gentile today, we need to understand where we fit in the whole story of God's relationship with Israel. The Bible tells us this, is that when we put our faith in Jesus, we were grafted in to Israel. Y'all understand that, right? We were grafted in to Israel. So we've become partakers of that which God has established and promised for Israel. We, were, we became part of the commonwealth of Israel. Okay, There is no distinction in that way between the church and Israel because God says if you're a Gentile believer, you are now part of Israel, believing Israel. And it's very important that we have an understanding and we develop this kind of a theology because when we understand this theology, we will not become arrogant. We will not become prideful. We will not become holier than thou, thinking that you know, somehow the church is better than what we think about as Israel. We need to stay humble. We need to understand our place and our role. And we need to understand that Israel was the tree and we're grafted into that. Okay? Very, very important that we understand this. And so let's think about what happened after the day of Pentecost. The day of Pentecost happened. The Lord Jesus, death, burial, and resurrection. He ascends to heaven. He sends the Holy Spirit. Remember, who were the first believers? They were who? They were the Jews because the, God, the Bible says that the gospel, uh, the, the gospel is the power of God and the salvation for all who believe first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. Okay, Jesus said salvation is from the Jews. And so we understand that the first believing community were Jewish people and then God scattered them and took the gospel through the apostles and the early church fulfilling the great commission and he began to send them out. And as the apostles went out into the, all the other nations, guess who they went to first? They always went to the Jews. They went to the synagogues and they shared the gospel with the Jews because they understood that this was first a promise to this ethnic people called the Jews. Now, did all the Jews receive Jesus Christ? Absolutely not. Many of them rejected. And as they would reject it, then God would raise up someone like the Apostle Paul. And he said, hey, Paul, i got a special mission for you. I want you primarily to go to be an apostle, not necessarily to just the Jews, but also to who? To the Gentiles. And so Paul and Barnabas and Titus and Luke and some of these apostles, man, they start going into these communities sharing the gospel, not just with the Jews, but also with the Gentiles, and they found something out amazing. Many, many of the Gentiles were much more, what, receptive to the gospel, and they're getting saved in record numbers, and now all of a sudden, this Jewish church doesn't know what to do with all these pagans who have come into faith in Jesus Christ. It's an amazing thing. That's what the whole chapter of Acts chapter 15 is all about. What are we going to do with all these pagans? What, what, what are we going to tell them? Do they have to become Jews to become a Christian? No, they don't. Because the salvation is what? By grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Amen. And so you begin to see how, this is what I'm getting at. From the very beginning, the gospel, the, the, the message of redemption, okay, has always been for all the nations. Amen. How do I know that? Because I read my Bible. And when I read my Bible, I read passages like Genesis 22. It says this. This is after Abraham has taken Isaac up onto Mount Moriah, which was the same mountain, by the way, that Jesus was crucified on. And he said this. Because of Abraham's faith, the Lord called to him and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you've done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. Listen, I will surely bless you and multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. You see, this is Abraham and Isaac. This is before Israel is even born. God's purpose was for all the what? All the nations. God's heart has always been for the whole world, every nation, tribe, and tongue to worship him and believe in him. Amen. You say, well, that was just Abraham. Well, Miss Jane read from us, read for us in Genesis when he specifically came to Jacob and he changed Jacob's name to Israel, who became the father of Israel. 
And listen to what he said to Jacob. He said, your offspring will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and east and north and south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. As a matter of fact, Israel was intended to be a light unto the Gentiles. Isaiah 49 says this, Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And then, of course, we know how in Jesus... All of these promises, there's a, there's a passage, I think it's in Romans, it says, all of the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Amen. Think about that. Every promise that God made to Israel and to the nations find their fulfillment in who? In Jesus Christ. Listen to what it says in Galatians 3. And this is very important for you and for me today. Because unless you're of ethnic Jewish descent, you're a Gentile just like me. Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. Now remember last time I checked, Abraham was blessed. He was to be a blessing to all nations. He was to be numbered as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Well, guess what, guys? That's you and me if we have believed in Jesus. He says, by faith, you're sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, he preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all nations be blessed. He says, so then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in, listen, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Listen to what he says now. He says, and the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one. The promise was made to your offspring who is Christ. He is the promised Messiah. He is the promised offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is what he says. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs, according to the promise. You see, from beginning to end, God has always had one people. People of faith. Amen. Believing people whether a Jew or a Gentile. When we understand this, it simplifies and clarifies a lot of the problems and confusion that we have about our relationship to Israel, our relationship to the Jewish people, and especially about our relationship to what's going to happen in the last days. Now, there's something that happened when the Gentiles began believing in Jesus. The Bible says that it began to provoke Israel to jealousy. Think about it. The Jewish Messiah, who they thought was just for themselves, all of a sudden now his name is being called out in Gentile churches all over this world this very day. Don't you know they're looking at that saying, what are they doing? Because many of the Jewish people alive today, they have rejected Jesus and they still don't believe that Messiah has come and they don't believe in Yeshua, the Messiah. And so they look at what we're doing and they have to think that we've lost our minds because they just don't get it. And the Bible says that God has given the Israelites a, a spirit of stupor. He's hardened their what? Their hearts have been hardened for a season. Not permanently, but temporarily. They just don't, they're just blind. They just don't get it. But they're jealous. Amen. Deep down, they're jealous. And, and, and you say that, what's the difference between jealousy and envy? You see, envy is when you have something... That I don't got and I what? I want it. Jealousy is when I had something and lost it and it belongs to someone else. Now I'm what? I'm, I want it back. In that sense, the Israelites are quote unquote jealous because you see, they thought this was just for them. They've temporarily lost it in a sense and now they want it back. Listen to what the scriptures say in Romans 11. He says, did I allow them to stumble so that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. 
But he says if their trespass means riches for the world and their failure means riches for the Gentiles, that's us, how much more will their full inclusion mean? In other words, God is not finished with the Jewish people. Praise God, hallelujah. He hasn't divorced them permanently. He has not disinherited the Jewish people. All of the promises that God has made to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the flesh are still intact. And that's why when we see what's happening in Israel today, in 1948, when we see the nation of Israel reestablished in the land, that ought to get our eyes open really big and wide and say, wait a minute, God's doing something here. After almost 1,900 years, we have the Jews back in the land underneath their own sovereign government, and there's a potential impossibility that they might even rebuild a temple in the land and resume their sacrifices. And all of these things are starting to line up in a way that we say, wait a minute, God's doing something here. Because he's not finished with the Jewish people. He has not divorced and disinherited them. All of his promises are still good to them. And so, as I said before, we as Gentiles, guys, we have participated in the commonwealth of Israel by faith. We've become citizens. Listen to me. When we say the kingdom of God, that's, you know what the kingdom of God will be when Jesus returns? The kingdom of Israel. Did you know that? When Jesus Christ, he's the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. When he comes back, his kingdom will be the kingdom of Israel. All the nations of the earth will come to Israel to pay tribute to the king. And if we're part of his kingdom, then we are citizens of the kingdom of Israel. We've become Israelites. Does that make sense? It just opens up a whole new dimension to our relationship to God because that's something that we have lost in churches because we don't preach the full counsel of the word of God. Listen to what it says in Ephesians chapter 2. It says, those who are in Christ Jesus once who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So therefore, we're no longer strangers and aliens, Gentiles, but we are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. Amen. Now, how do we take this and pray for the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, and specifically for the peace of Jerusalem, as as Brother Jim read to us a little bit earlier? I think it's very important we establish this. A lot of people ask me, hey, Brother Marcus, are you pro-Israel? Well, it depends. Because if that means pro-Israel, does that mean that I agree with everything that the, that the nation and the leadership of Israel does? That does not, that's not what it means. I'm not pro-Israel in that sense. Amen. The people of Israel and the leaders of Israel, they do a lot of wicked things today. There's a lot of immorality in the land of Israel. There's a lot of corrupt dealings among the leadership of Israel. They're not perfect people by any stretch of the imagination. So I wouldn't say we're to be 100% pro-Israel. Here's the way we need to frame it. I'm a friend to Israel. We should be friends to the Jewish people. Because a friend will love his friend in good times and bads when they make good decisions and bad decisions. But a real friend will tell their friend the truth. And that's our role and responsibility as Christians... Followers of Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, we're to be friends of Israel. We're not to completely um, agree with everything that they do, but we're to be there for them and love them and share the gospel with them and certainly pray for them. And I do believe we're to bless them. And the greatest blessing we can give the Jews and the people of Israel is to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. It's the greatest blessing that we can give them. Now, let's talk real quickly about the peace of Jerusalem. Because yes, we should pray for the Jewish people. Yes, we need to pray for the Israelites. Listen, it's amazing to me. When you look at a map and you see how tiny the land of Israel is and they are surrounded by hostile nations all around them and they are this really small sliver of land just trying to survive and ward off all of the aggression and hostility toward them. It is a miracle today that they are still alive in the land. It is. It truly is. And and they're the only true democracy in the Middle East, and that's why we should be geopolitically connected and be friends to them. So that's a whole other story. But let's talk about specifically the peace of Jerusalem. Do you know that the Jews today do not have full total control over their capital city? The city is still what? Divided. 
You have a Muslim quarter and a Jewish quarter and, and a, a, a Christian quarter. And you have all these different divisions. And there are certain places you can go and you're not supposed to go. And again, even to this day, the Jews are, are discouraged, if not prohibited, from going up on to the Temple Mount. In their own city, in their own capital, that has been in the hands and control of Israel since the days of David. You think about that. So what does it mean for you and me to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Now, it should mean, yes, that we pray for the peace of the people and that uh, all of the hostility and the terrorism in the land and that the nation of Israel would be protected from its enemies and from her enemies. I do believe we pray for that and we should pray for that. But let me tell you what it really means, guys. There will never be true peace in Jerusalem, which is the city of peace. There will never be true peace in that city until the Prince of Peace is sitting on his throne, Amen. ruling and reigning from Jerusalem. So when we pray for the peace of Jerusalem, ultimately, what are we praying for? Jesus, the return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because until then, until then, there will never be true, lasting peace. Listen to what the prophet Isaiah says. The word of Isaiah concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the highest of mountains. It will be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people will come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways. For we may walk in his paths, for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Amen. For he shall judge between nations and decide disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Amen. Amen. That's when Jesus is back on his throne in Jerusalem. As I close out before we pray, I, I, there's a fascinating quote that Jesus says in Matthew 23. Many of you probably know it. Jesus is standing out look, overlooking the city and he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets he says how I would have rather been able to gather you like a chick like a hen gathers her chicks underneath her wings he says but you were not willing he's, he's lamenting over Jerusalem because far and wide as far as the leadership of Israel they did reject their Messiah the first time he came but then he says an amazing thing he says he said you will not see me again until you say, Blessed be he who comes in the name of the Lord. Barak Haba Hashem Yehovah. What did Jesus just say? He's saying, Jerusalem and the leadership of Israel, because you have rejected me, he says, you're not going to see me again until you call out and repent. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then we read in Zechariah 12. I got to read it to you because it's, it's, it's worth reading. What is that going to look like? Let me tell you what it's going to look like. Zechariah chapter 12. Listen to this. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. So that when they look on me. On him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. There's coming a day when the Jewish people see Jesus coming and they have a spirit of 
repentance in their heart and he pours out a spirit of mercy and grace upon them and they will acknowledge and admit that they were wrong, that they had rejected Messiah, that they had missed him and that they were guilty of rejecting the one true Messiah that they had been waiting for. But in that time, there will be a remnant of Israel, there will be a remnant of the Jewish people who will look upon Jesus and they will say, blessed be he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. You know what Hosanna means? Save us now, Lord. Save us. In the greatest moment of their distress, they will cry out unto the name of the Lord and call out unto the name of the Lord. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And so all of this really culminates and climaxes at the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in that way, it says all Israel will be saved. In that way, a remnant will always believe. What an amazing promise. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so as I, as I pray now, we're going to spend our last few moments here praying for our friends, friends of Israel, our Jewish brothers and sisters. And I think a lot of people have some struggle with that. They say, so why do you just pray for, like, don't you pray for the Indians and the Chinese and the South Americans and the Russians? Yeah, we pray for everyone. We pray for the whole world. Matter of fact, next week we're going to really emphasize the coming of Jesus and the salvation and the hope of nations, right? But, th but today there is a special, unique blessing in for us to bless Israel. There is a special, unique calling for God's people to pray for the people of Israel, the Jewish people, and for the peace of Jerusalem. That's why we're doing it. And so I'm going to go ahead in my time of prayer. I will let our praise team to go ahead and make their way back up because it'll take them a few minutes to get up here. But I want you to just join me right now in a prayer for our friends in Israel and specifically for the peace of Jerusalem that will only happen truly when Jesus Christ himself comes, King of kings and Lord of lords. Heavenly Father, oh, that you have mercy upon a sinner like me. Father, the mystery of the gospel is that you have always intended the Gentiles to participate in your kingdom. Lord, this, this mystery as Jesus came to die on the cross, to, to give us forgiveness, to be raised from the get dead, to give us eternal life, Lord. And for all who believe in him will be saved. And Lord, the mystery is that it wasn't just for the Jews to the exclusion of the whole world, yet the Jews were meant to be a conduit and an instrument to bless the whole world. And here, we're here today only because of your mercy, only because of your grace. And so as believers in the Jewish Messiah, Jesus, we come here to bless the Jewish people. We pray for a spirit of mercy and a spirit of grace to fall upon the Jewish people, that they would turn their hearts back to you, Lord. As you said, in those days, you will send Elijah. Elijah will turn the hearts of the children back to the fathers and the hearts of the fathers back to the children. Lord, we pray that you would turn the hearts of the people of Israel back to you, that you would give them a, a spirit of mercy, that you would save them, Lord, that you would show them who you really are. And if you can use us in any way, Lord, to minister and to witness to our Jewish brothers and sisters, I pray that you would give us the courage and the love for them to pray for them. Lord, I pray for the peace of Israel. I pray for the, the boundaries and the borders as they are surrounded by hostile nations, Lord. They are constantly on guard, constantly protecting and defending their territory from hostile enemies. Oh, Lord, we pray for peace. We pray for deliverance from their enemies. Father, we pray for the leadership of Israel, that they would not rule selfishly, but that they would truly turn to you and rule in wisdom and righteousness. Father, we pray for the relationship with Israel, with all these surrounding nations, as things look like they're beginning to normalize and and Lord, we don't know where exactly that's going to lead, but we pray that you would bless them and that they would be a blessing to many other people around them. But Father, ultimately we pray for the peace of Jerusalem, your city, the place in which you have placed your name forever, and your holy mountain, Zion, where you will reign and rule forever forever.
and ever, Lord. And so, Father, we pray in that way that Jesus would come. The Maranatha cry, Lord, that you would come quickly, Lord Jesus, so that you will establish a kingdom of Israel that is a kingdom of righteousness and a kingdom of peace and a kingdom of blessing to the whole world as the King of kings and the Lord of lords reigns and rules from the throne of David in the city of Jerusalem over the kingdom of Israel. And that, Lord, you have given us the privilege to participate and inherit that kingdom. And that we will rule and reign along with you. Oh, Lord, what a blessing. And so, Lord, as we pray for Israel, help us to keep our eyes fixed on you. But also allow us to be observant about what's going on in the Middle East. Help us to continue to pray for our friends in Israel. But more than anything else, Lord, give us a burden. For the, for the Jewish people who are lost and who are far away from you, who are temporarily hardened and blinded, Lord, if you could use us as an instrument of truth to show them the light of the gospel, the glory of God, oh Lord, we would be privileged to be a witness unto them. And so Lord, in all these things, in the spirit of Jesus our Lord, we pray. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Guys, we're going to sing one more song before we go. I do want to say one thing uh, before, we, before we start, Bellman. A lot of people have asked a question about Tuesday night, which is November 3rd, our election night. Let me, let me just give you a, a little bit of a, uh, a brief description of what to expect. I, I want to encourage you guys to come. We're going to begin around 6 p.m., there will be a polling station in the sanctuary, and so we're going to allow that. Obviously, that's, that's got to take its time to close. We've got voters that will be coming up here till at least 7 o'clock, if not later. But what we're going to be doing is that we're going to have four or five different prayer stations throughout the church. And so as you come, come around 6 p.m., we'll probably go till about 8 p.m., give or take. Um, but what we're encouraging our people to do, two things, ready? Number one, I'm encouraging us to have a fast on Tuesday, November 3rd. Okay, fast from food, fast from technology, fast from the internet, whatever you got to fast from, that's between you and the Lord. But deny yourself something that you love and fast with the purposes of prayer. So that when we come together Tuesday night, we're going to gather and we're going to be able to have different prayer stations set up throughout the church where we can go and we can pray with our church family for specific reasons and specific purposes. And that's really what it's going to look like. Okay, this is not a, a Donald Trump celebration party or a Joseph Biden celebration party. That's not what this is. I think a lot of people think, oh, well, how are you going to make this not political? This is not a political statement by the church. This is the purpose for us to intercede on behalf of our nation. Amen. That's what this is, pure and simple. Okay, so either way, I don't care who you stand for or how you're voting, you can come to what? To pray. And I, I can't think of a better thing we as God's people in our church family to be doing than to be coming together on Tuesday night, election night, and praying for our, our nation. And that's what it's going to look like, okay? So I wanted to clear that up. If you do have any more questions, uh, Miss Jane and some others may be here at the prayer desk uh, after we close out. You can come up here and ask them as well. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, may you bless our time here as we sing. And Lord, I thank you that you're a God who never lets go of us and that no one can snatch us from your hand. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together as we, as we sing. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, your perfect love is casting out fear. Even when I'm caught in the middle of the storms of this life, I won't turn back, I know you are near, and I will fear no evil, for my God is with me, if my God is
Let go. 